Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Hey folks, I am on today with a clinical psychologist. I'm really excited to get to know better and find out more about what she's been doing in the world of dementia. Dr. Jennifer Stelter is a clinical psychologist. She's a co-owner of the Dementia Connection Institute, and she's a creator of the Dementia Connection Model, which we're going to talk about today. I'm really excited to learn uh, more about that. She's also a Johns Hopkins author of the book, The Busy Caregiver's Guide to Advanced Alzheimer's Disease, and she's a dementia expert. So we are super, super happy to have you here, Jennifer. And, and by the way, folks, I will make sure that we put in the show notes that her book and the ways to contact her about this model that we're going to learn about today. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Do you mind? I always like to start out with just an opportunity for folks to get to know you a little better. And if you could tell us a little bit about maybe how dementia has impacted you personally or, or professionally, or how you got into this line of work, or just give us kind of an idea of, of your personal and professional experience in this world. Absolutely. So my caregiving journey is a little bit different than most people of why they land up in senior care or something related to dementia care. I actually went into dementia care first, and then I actually had a grandmother-in-law develop Alzheimer's disease, and I was able to be an asset to the family, which I was very grateful for, and, and vice versa, they were as well. So I fell in love with the industry and working with folks with dementia, previous to even having a personal experience with it. Um, but really, my journey in why I became a psychologist is it started off really as a, as a personal endeavor. Early on in my teens, I was diagnosed with some mental health challenges myself. And through that journey, I really wanted to give back to the field and to the community, knowing that the services that I received extremely helped me in my journey and my life. And so then I decided I want to become a clinical psychologist. And I went to school and earned my master, master's and doctorate degree in, in clinical psychology. And then from there, I spent the first half of my career in mental health and working in a wide variety of levels of care and with a wide variety of clients. And from there, actually out of my postdoctoral experience, having worked with seniors in the VA, I actually then went into senior living. And so when I enter into senior living, I still worked in behavioral health, uh, but then quickly transitioned over to dementia care, um, knowing that there was a need and that the expertise and knowledge that I had in mental health, I could use in dementia care and knowing that there was definitely some pain points and definitely needs to address. I said to myself that I can make a greater impact here. And so that's when I transitioned over to dementia care and have been in this space ever since. And as I mentioned, along that journey, I had a grandmother-in-law who developed Alzheimer's disease and was able to be a part of that treatment process with the family and helping them make decisions and guiding them and, and that kind of stuff, which we're both grateful for. But it's, again, a reverse from most people when they get into this industry where how their journey usually ends up. But that's a little bit about how I got into dementia care itself. Love that. Thank you for sharing that. I'm a little bit of similarities because my background is in mental health too. And, and I think that a lot of the, 
the education and, and skills that that I gained anyways in, in that field has really can position us well to whether we're working directly with folks who are living with dementia or we're working with the families that are impacted, the families that are caring for those. It's yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Jennifer. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I really just want to dive right into this model. So it's the dementia connection model. Mm-hmm. Can you tell, just give us a little idea of how this came, this came about? What, is it a model you created on your own? Is this something that you had been thinking about for a long time? Is this, yeah, give us some history on this model. Absolutely. When I entered into working with individuals who have dementia, I was consulting for a uh, skilled and assisted living uh, community. It's a very large community out here in the Midwest where they have multiple facilities and levels of care. And and during this time in learning more about senior care and, and talking with nurses and CNAs and understanding that they don't get trained in dementia care in their schooling. And I was just, I was flabbergasted by that. And, and a lot of nurses and CNAs say, I got this role or this job opportunity, went into nursing care. And then I'm just thrown into working with folks who have dementia. And I said, wow. And and you see the challenges that they experience, right? They're not educated in it. They're not quite sure the appropriate treatment, uh, how to approach, how to connect, how to communicate, right? And a lot of times they're going off of experience and they're oftentimes doing the right things, but they're not quite sure how and when to do those right things. They're going off of their own Yeah, they're Mm -hmm. going through their own intuition. They're going off of what they learned in school in terms of just being able to physically care for a person, right? But dementia care is, there's really no known medical treatment for it. It's really about our social care model that we have to look at. And so that they're not really taught. And so I said, wow, what a gap between when folks graduate from school and they move into their career and they're still left with a lack of understanding with a very profound population that's going to be treated in senior living for years to come. And so I said, there's an opportunity here, an opportunity for me to bring in what I've learned and my expertise to say, how can I make a difference here? And so the model kind of slowly started to come together when I was doing a lot of training. And when I would train people, they said, the way that you explain it just makes sense. I said, really? They said, yeah, like, I've never heard about it before. The way that you explain it, like the light bulb is going on. I said, okay, I I have something here. Yeah. And along the same time that this was happening, and I was trialing different techniques and whatnot, I was pregnant. I actually had both my son and then my daughter through this process, because this was a 10 year development. And I was coming home from work, and I was taking care of my infants and, and then toddlers and seeing such a similarity in the needs between people with dementia and infants and toddlers, just what the need is, how they communicate, where their learning process is. And I said, wow, like this makes a lot of sense. So I did more digging. I did more understanding around this and came across the work of Dr. Barry Reisberg. And so he developed the theory of retrogenesis and His theory essentially pinpoints uh, specifically that for folks who are moderate to late stage, that you are looking at someone who is not chronologically the age of an 85-year-old, let's just say, you are developmentally looking at and working with or caring for someone who is age seven years old to four weeks old. And when I read that and looked at the research, I said, this makes sense. Because when I'm coming home and taking care of my young ones, 
they are mimicking what I'm seeing when I'm working with people living with dementia. So I said, what are the parallels here? And how can I continue to incorporate this in what I'm teaching? And again, as I mentioned, the light bulbs were going on. People are like, I've never, now I can put myself in actually my resident's shoes and I can understand it better. And even talking to families, they were like, okay, this makes sense. This is why mom can't do this. This is why mom does this, right? That kind of thing. And so it slowly developed over a 10-year period and it became more of a framework where the first, uh, it's like three pillars. The first one is that theory of retrogenesis. So it's taking what the industry already knows and saying, let's capitalize on that information and explain it in a way that um, it can make sense to anybody. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I took that theory and just explained it in a way that made sense. And so that first piece is really understanding that as a disease is progressing, all skills are going to reverse towards infancy. And that's that theory of retrogenesis. So it's how they cope, how their emotional intelligence, you know, and as we, we already know, and a lot of people already know, walking, talking, that kind of stuff, right? So all of that's going to reverse towards infancy. But what's happening here is, and I took it a step further, is what does that look like? What does that world look like? Because we often hear people say, People with dementia live in a different world than you and I, but people are like, what does that mean? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? And what that means is when you look at that age range of seven years old to four weeks old, Mm -hmm. the way that adolescents really navigate through that time period is they use their senses to experience everything, right? Think about that. Like a toddler who's two years old, that's the time where they are, they've learned how to feed themselves. They're now toileting. They've been able to walk, right? Crawling and walking. They're doing that all based on what they're seeing, what they're hearing, repetition, right? Using their senses to really gain their skills and gain their independence. So I said, what if we did this in reverse? What if we, because we hear about sensory stimulation with people with dementia, right? Again, what does that mean? But if we use this proactively to say, okay, I'm going to use sensory stimulation to maintain these independent skills of people living with dementia, it's got to work, right? And it did, right? And so that's where that kind of the, the other, another pillar comes in is the actual tool itself is sensory stimulation, okay? Yeah. Well, we'll, and we'll look at this clinically too, because there's so many benefits to sensory stimulation. Clinically, what's happening is not only are we now in their world, we now know how they're going to tick because their world is going to be very similar to those, the world of adolescents, right? But clinically, what's going on is when any sensory stimuli comes into our brain, right, it is processed ultimately in the limbic system. And in the limbic system, we have two very important organs. We have our amygdala, which it helps to generate our emotions, and our hippocampus, which houses our memories, right? So it's our memory bank, essentially. And so when stimuli comes in, it's going to influence our feelings and influence our memories. So I said, so taking that sensory stimuli to the next level, I said, we obviously want to make a positive experience for them. That means positive feelings, positive memories. So we have to use positive stimuli that is specific to that person that's going to create that and ignite that limbic system in a productive way. Because we know when it's stimulated in a negative way, Mm -hmm. it's very, it's unproductive. But then what I did was I took it a step further and I said, okay, being a psychologist, I'm very much have promoted the cognitive behavioral theory for a long time in mental health and saying, okay, if, if I know in cognitive behavioral theory, if your feelings are influenced, your behaviors are influenced, 
Absolutely. It's like a step process. Thoughts impact feelings, feelings impact behaviors. Now, we don't know all the thoughts that are that go on with people living with dementia because oftentimes they can't articulate that. But we do know they're feeling something because that amygdala is ignited. Mm-hmm. And you see it on their face often. You see it within their body language, right? So if we can get their feelings to be influenced in a positive way, this is going to influence their memories, but also ultimately influence their behaviors. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we see negative behaviors. We see sometimes, of course, that sundowning, we see aggression. Sometimes we see wandering, right? And these are things we want the person to not necessarily have to experience. We want them to experience pleasantries, right? Being productive, sociable, interactive, engaged, those kinds of things. And so have good sleep, good appetite, right? All those things, right? So we want to be able to influence that. So that's why the dementia connection model is the first cognitive behavioral theory in dementia care, because we're taking the clinical side, we're taking the psychological side, and we're playing on that. Now, the third pillar of this is, well, how do I do this, right? Right. And it's through the act of habilitation, meaning simply, we're going to do things over and over again on a schedule in order to promote that in, those independent skills, Okay. And so that's where we go in and we talk about, okay, so what types of stimuli would we implement in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, overnight, and we do it again the next day, right? And what I found was that third piece, because ultimately if you use the first and second piece by itself, works fabulous, we have an immediate effect because within 30 seconds, your limbic system is ignited. So they're going to be influenced right away. But through my period of 10 years in in looking at this, what I found over a four-week period, if we are really consistent with the way we're implementing these tools, that the person with dementia learns what those tools mean and what they should be doing. Wow. This this is just, I just have to stop you for a second. (laughs) What a profound statement that somebody living with dementia is learning on some level in their brain, a new behavior, a new way of yeah. living. They may not have the, the insight related to that. They may not have the cognitive ability to understand that, but that's pretty profound. Yeah. And yeah, because often times you'll hear them say, what should I be doing right now? Yes. You know, uh, oh. where should I be? What time is it? Right. Yes. And if we can ease those anxieties for them simply by having a structured way of implementing the, the sensory stimuli that's coming in, they will have those question answers. They, they feel more at ease. And this is very similar to how children are too. Adolescents, when we have them on a structured schedule, they are productive in their own right. But when there is no structure to their schedule, they're unproductive, right? Yeah. And it's and anxiety so, provoking as, as you said. Yeah, exactly. So what I, and how I learned this was because I, we specifically implemented the dementia connection model within a dining process. And so we targeted that so we could test it and run data on it. And the results were unbelievable. And with that four week period that I was mentioning, what we just, and I wasn't even expecting this, but we found it out. We had in this assisted living, there were CNAs that traditionally had helped all residents, majority of them to the dining area when it was mealtime. After we implemented the dimension, excuse me, the dimension connection model for four weeks, what we found were residents were actually wheeling or walking themselves to the dining area as soon as they experienced the stimuli that were associated with eating, which was specifically, we had implemented essential oils, which is olfactory, and music, which is auditory. So as soon as we were playing those things within the environment, we saw them bringing themselves to the dining area for the most who could do it. 
And just to see them, it was just like, it almost was like a calling. Like they were walking and we're like, is this really happening? The staff were ecstatic. Families who were there were crying. Oh, I can imagine. It was unbelievable. And then the staff figured out this frees up my time. I can now focus on the folks who really do need escorting and who do need help with ADL care within the feeding process. It's so it's less work on them. They felt more available for the actual needs of the people who were needed. The residents felt more independent. They're getting more physical exercise because they were wheeling themselves, using their arms, walking, all those kinds of things. And so it just, everyone benefited from that. And so we found that out just kind of serendipity through the process. And so that's kind of part of it is that you get an immediate effect and a long-term effect, which is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Will you do us a favor? Will you walk us through like really what was implemented? What really did it look like on the ground? How, how did you initiate it? What were some of the tools just to give folks a a real um, solid picture about what was happening there? Absolutely. So what we did was, so we implemented uh, citrus essential oils specifically because there has been a lot of research that shows that citrus actually increases appetite and improves mood, which are two awesome recipes for people living with dementia. Um, So what we did was 30 minutes prior to each meal, we diffuse citrus specifically. So they would get used to that scent. They knew what it was. And of course, um, biologically, they're getting what they need, what their brain needs to ignite those different parts of the brain that say, I'm hungry and I'm happy, right? Um, So we were getting it on both ends there. We implemented music. Now there was specific music that we had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So they were distinct, different sounds that they could pick up on and learn as well. So for breakfast, we did um, uh, music of their era that was upbeat with words. Okay. So tunes that they will recognize and why that is, and this was actually studied done through Harvard university is that they were um, able to sing along and start to get their verbal skills going for the day during that breakfast. So we did that for breakfast. And again, we would start that 30 minutes prior. Okay. Then, and it could be 15 to 30 minutes. It doesn't have to be exactly 30 minutes. Um, then for lunch, we did the upbeat music, but with no words. So they can socialize with their table mates and not be distracted by the words for lunch. And then dinner was non-biharmic music, which is one tone being played like a piano, flute, guitar, like classical think of, but like one instrument, which is very calming, which is what you want anywhere from 3 p.m. on, okay? And so again, we did that 15 to 30 minutes prior to that dinner. So they understood the distinct sounds, And they were able to then take that in as well as your auditory stimulation. For visual stimulation, what we used was the use of different colored plateware, which I have here. I'm going to show you. Sure. Yeah. I come with props. This is what we do. We have tools. We have tools here at the Institute. And this is a study done. Yeah, because a lot of our listeners are podcast only. We, okay. by, by the way, side note, we are going to be launching a YouTube channel and we will we will show our video once we get the library uploaded. But for those of you listening right now, I'll let you describe, Jennifer, what you're, what yes. you're showing us. So what I'm showing is a either a red color bold plate or a yellow color bold plate. And so this was actually studied on a Boston University and red actually stimulates appetite. So it increases your appetite, which is great. And yellow actually has been shown to sustain attention. Okay. And that's why McDonald's is a multi-billion dollar business, right? Who paid for oh, that? So, yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Huh? Yes, no, yes. Yeah. No accident when it comes to the marketing, yes, right? <laughs> exactly. And so sometimes I'll say you can either mix and match the colors if you want, 
but uh, otherwise, if your loved one or if you're in senior care and, you're in, and your residents are struggling with actually eating, I would recommend the red plates. And if it's more an attention issue where they're being distracted, I would go with yellow. But you can do a comp, a comp have like a Santa Fe look, you know. So, um, but uh, so we use different color plateware as the visual stimuli to that. We also played into some other um, some known things. Like for example, as the disease progresses, they get overwhelmed with too much. Uh, too many choices in front of them. So we um, offered uh, the meal in courses rather than everything at once. So we did that as well. Um, for, for certain uh, folks who had special diets, if it was like they were on like a puree, softer food, we would serve it in bowls. So it looked like soup rather than something on the plate because it looks more appetizing in a bowl. So those are just different kinds of visual things we played with to make it definitely more exciting, igniting, those kinds of things for them. Tactile, what we did for that is we had different, so if they needed certain, what we call adaptive equipment, so if they need like a thicker spoon, fork, knife, we made sure they were evaluated for that. So they didn't have any issues with picking up some of the utensils and the pieces, and they felt more independent with that. Um, we also had like attractive napkins that they can use. So we steered away from anything white, gray, black, dark brown, anything like that, things that were more enticing. We also did contrast. So for example, we, if, they if we serve food on a red plate, we made sure the types of foods we served were lighter in color. So it contrasted with the, with the plate itself. And so you can do that. You can, that's why it's good to have different color plateware too. You can do that. Mm -hmm. So that's more of the visual and the, the tactile piece of it. And then gustatory wise, we really focus on more of the Mediterranean diet as that's been shown in a multitude of studies to be very healthy for people, our brain health in general, but great for people living with dementia, not only helping with cognitive benefits, but depression, anxiety, yeah. those kinds of things, obviously all physical heart and whatnot. But so we did that. And then we, of course, we would slide in some of their favorite treats as well. And so those are things that we would incorporate too for gustatory stimulation. So what we did was we made sure that we had the structure for every single meal every day. Um, and so we had, of course, the staff to observe, to implement those kinds of things. But we tried to hit every, every cent, right, of the person. So that way they can be ignited in positive ways. So that's really how we implemented it over a three-month period. Amazing. And the data that we found, so we had 46% of uh, residents increase their food consumption. 54% either. First of all, yeah. yeah. I just yeah. want to pause there for a second. That's incredible. 46% yeah. is pretty incredible. And your the patients that you were working with, the residents, you were in a dementia um, unit or mm -hmm. dementia care. Assisted living. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did, so I'm guessing there's a wide range of, of folks, people at all different ends of the um, scale. Yes. Mostly moderate to late. Yeah. So maybe early in the moderate phase, all the way through late. Okay. We don't typically see early phases in assisted living. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Just curious. Yeah. yeah. How, yeah. Okay. This, wow. Yeah. And then we had 54% of residents either gained or maintained weight who needed it. Wow. And then for those who are on supplements, we were able to discontinue 72% of the supplements. Now, this is wonderful for so many reasons because the residents who were able to discontinue that, they were able to eat regular food, wow. which that is just a quality of life altogether. Yeah. Secondly, the families in this particular organization, the families were responsible for paying for the supplements. 
So we were able to save the families in that three month period, $9,000, which is unbelievable. Yeah. And I calculated that out over what's a typical size of a, a memory care neighborhood, how many of those residents are typically on supplements. And I was able to calculate over a year period that an organization can save up to $35,000 just on supplements. Yeah. And, and so I mean, that's I, huge. As a, I own a care management company too. I'm thinking about the time it takes to go to the store and buy the supplements and bring it and the people you're yeah. paying to do that and the monitoring. Mm-hmm. Of the, yeah. Wow. That's really mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it was definitely was quite Did an experience you, and I'm looking were forward to any, Were you tracking any mood indicators? Clearly these are impacting a person's quality of life and mood as well. Yes. Unfortunately, in that particular quality of study, we weren't able to do that. But to your point, yes, absolutely. I'm sure that there were some indicators there. I'm hoping in within my company, we've applied for grants through CMS to see if we can further gain more of that data. So hopefully more to come. Congratulations on that. Really? This is really profound. And when, when was this? When did you do this? When did this So start? this particular quality of study was, was pre-pandemic. I think it was in 2016, I want to say. So, and I published the results in the book too. So they're there as well. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. Let's veer off for a second because you mentioned the book. Um, tell us about the book that you have and um, what, what you cover in the book as well. Yeah, absolutely. So grateful um, that Johns Hopkins wanted to do this piece with me. I pitched it to them and they wanted to pick it up almost instantly. I remember the day I got the call, which was wonderful. I couldn't believe it. So yes, the book came out October of 2021. And the way I formatted the book was really a workbook style. The, the opportunity there for the caregiver is to be able to apply the dementia connection model in every area of care from ADL care, communicating, even for yourself, there's a self-care chapter, how you can use the model too. But each chapter at the end has a, a chart that you can start to document, okay, which sensory tools did I use with my loved one or my resident? And what was the outcome? And I always recommend try it three times. And if majority are successful, then that tool goes in your toolkit, if you will. And so by the end of the book, you have a full toolbox of sensory-based tools you can use. And so, yeah, the book is broken up by chapter of usually an area of care and how to apply the model to that area of care. There's an introduction with going over the basics of dementia. So you learn one on what is dementia, a little bit of history behind the diagnosis, the diagnoses and things like that. And it ends with the self-care chapter. So you can apply this to yourself as well, which is, I think is just an imperative part of this journey. It it cannot be successful without the the self-care component too. Absolutely. One thing I love so much about what you're talking about is what I have found with my work is that there are cha- there are challenges. We are guaranteed to be challenged. I'm it's part of being a human being, and and especially when we're caring for someone else, and and then especially the unique challenges that come with caring or living with somebody who has dementia. What I love about what you're saying is you are truly tapping into the creativity piece. And I think this is, uh, I've just seen this as key so many times that when people get burned out or stuck or they're up against the problem, it feels like you're hitting a wall and there's no energy that can go towards thinking outside the box or being creative that isn't depleting someone. And so mm-hmm. everything that you're saying right now, I feel myself getting excited. Ooh, <laughs> let's try this. Ooh, let's use our senses. Ooh, let's think outside the box. Yeah, it's pretty, I'm pretty excited, actually. I have not read your book. I, I'm going to be ordering it, though. And thank you. Really, yeah, I'm excited to look further into this as well. 
Okay. So your book, what is the title? I don't think we, we told folks what the title of your book is. It's called the busy caregiver's guide to advance Alzheimer's disease. I testimonials, easy read. I have actually, it took off, which was really awesome. Just people reading it on, uh, at the pool, at the beach. And I have various pictures like on social media of people carrying it around. It's crazy because it's a great gift as well to pass along to someone who needs it, or it's a Christmas gift or whatever it might be, but it's great for family caregivers. And that's what our, we developed our Institute really to focus on all caregivers, not just healthcare providers. So it's great for them, but it's also great for organizational leaders who are looking to give resources to their frontline staff. Great for CNAs, nurses, dietary staff, activity staff. It's a really great resource for anybody who is a hands-on caregiver and, or you want to just learn more about the disease. Absolutely. Wonderful. I'm imagining too, that this is a book or really a model that, that folks will continue to go back to as their loved ones progress. Yes. And, and mm-hmm. you'll be tweaking and adjusting and revisiting ideas and approaches. Absolutely. I, I talk in the, one of the chapters, I think towards the end, I say, keep this book around because some of the things that you're reading now, your loved one may not be at that point and they eventually may be. So therefore you might want to pick this back up when they enter the next phase, those kinds of things. And, and your toolbox may change as they're getting younger, right? Because what they may have liked if they're developmentally in their teens at this point, and then they're progressing towards that moderate to late stage and they're more in an adolescent time, their needs are going to change their preferences because they're going to like more what they liked when they were younger. So this is a very personalized journey and this model can move along in this personalized journey with them. It's just us as the caregivers being on top of what do they like? What do they not like? Um, Noticing if they don't like something, then we're changing that up because again, they might be getting younger and it didn't phase them then, those kinds of things. So we want to make sure we're we're forever changing as the caregiver because that is what our responsibility is because people living with dementia don't have the ability to change necessarily. They're going to go with that journey. Yeah. Oh, this is fantastic information. Before we hopped on the, before we we hit record, you had used a term with me, you were talking about prescriptive engagement Mm -hmm. and care. And I stopped you because I was like, wait, I don't know what that means or what that is. Let's talk about it while we're recording so that folks can hear about that too. Do you mind explaining that term? us? Yeah. So with prescriptive engagement, it's simply taking the dementia connection model and it's taking the tools within that model to say, how can I quote prescribe, right? These tools into their everyday. Okay. I'll give you an example. Oftentimes people with dementia, they'll either be prescribed like an anti-anxiety medication and or antipsychotic medication to help them stay calm, especially in the later afternoon to late when it's sundowning time, right? So what we say is, and and usually there's a prescription for that, obviously. And so in that prescription, it's going to say something like one time daily or one time afternoon, that kind of thing with a certain milligrams, right? Very similar to any prescription. So what I recommend here is I would say something like, okay, we are actually going to diffuse lavender essential oil 30 minutes prior to if three o'clock is their sundowning time, we're going to diffuse it 30 minutes prior to that. So it gets in the air. The person is taking it in from an olfactory standpoint, their brain is being stimulated by it. And that's something we're going to do on a daily basis. So your prescription is lavender essential oil, five drops in the um, diffuser, 
at 2.30 p.m. daily. That's your prescription. Okay. And so you're using a non-pharmacological or non-drug tool, right, therapy, to be able to uh, provide the same calming effect that anti-anxiety medication or antipsychotic medication does, but you're replacing it. And or it could be in combination with it, depending on obviously when you always work with your doctors about these prescriptions, but it could be a nice alternative and or a nice additive to that process. And yeah. so it's something that you would follow every day, just like if you were giving them medication. And so that's really the prescriptive end of it is that you as a caregiver can feel confident to say, okay, once I'm educated in this and I have maybe taken some classes or maybe I've read up on it, whatever it might be, that you can implement these things and, and feel like you are quote prescribing yeah. these non-pharmacy tools. And we need to go more and more into that realm because you know, with medications, there are terrible side effects. I'm not saying that they're not, there's not a place for them. What I'm saying is we as caregivers need to be educated on what are all my options first and yes. then decide what is right for my loved one. And it's trial and error to see, can I use these non-pharmacy tools? Are they successful before going to a medication, honestly? And if they're already on those medications, is there opportunity to decrease some of that medication if you're using alternatives. And you would talk to your doctor about that. You would never do that on your own. And uh, from there, some doctors have discontinued medication mm -hmm. in order to use these because these non-pharmacy tools are so successful, right? And that takes a period of time to see if that works, but it's so worth it because the amount of impact that those medications have on their brain and their body is just yeah. unbelievable. It's overuse, unfortunately. And that's just the, yeah. the truth yeah. of it all is overuse in our industry. And so that's partly why I developed the Institute with my business partner was to say, we want to educate people on the non-pharmacy part of this, yes. right? And being a doctor myself, I'm combining the Western and Eastern worlds together because there is harmony in both. And, you know, that's really where prescriptive engagement comes out of is this whole social care model piece where we know it works because there's a lot of evidence to show it, they, you know, within clinical practice and within, within research. So why not go down that road and give the kind of um, the power to the caregivers to be able to do this and yes. get success with it. So there's certain some recommendations that we have within the Institute of how often would you use uh, aromatherapy? When would you use it? Which oils would you use for which symptoms, for example? And we have, for, when we talk about you know, uh, the use of like brain games, like how often should you, you use cognitive stimulation throughout the day, throughout the week, for how long should I do it for? We have all those recommendations based on research that we have been able to incorporate within our practice. And we took all that information and we actually created a certification program out of it for any caregiver, family caregivers, healthcare professionals. And so you can learn more about that through the Institute, but that's really what social prescribing is. It's being able to take that uh, prescriptive model piece and say, I can implement these tools every day, just like I would a medication and give it to mom or dad every day at the same time. I can do that. And it gives the power back to the caregiver to it feel does. empowered and feeling competent in what they're doing. Yeah. And the caregivers, whether it's professional caregivers or family caregivers are really the ones that know better than any medical provider, what the nuances and the, the fine-tuned personalities and the history and all of those pieces. So Absolutely. what I'm hearing is not only is this a model that presents tools and opportunities to assist with the, the quality of life, but it, but it impacts everyone. I was actually giggling a little bit because I was imagining walking into a memory care facility and smelling lavender essential oil in the air. And I was thinking, this is obviously it's going to impact the caregivers that are working, anybody that's mm -hmm. in the environment. And when you have this overall 
calming environment or stimulating environment that's going to impact everyone. We, right on. We and talk I actually so talk about that about, in the book. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I talk, talk about, about a win. Yeah, yeah, the, the win. Mm-hmm. And, and how, how we know that the mood, the sort of unconscious behavior that's coming from the people providing the care, if they're stressed or they're tense or they're preoccupied in their own minds, it's going to come across to the person that's receiving the care because we know that those, that people are extra sensitive. And so you're essentially using their quote language of the senses to reach them and, and have a, a positive impact on their lives. This is fascinating work, Thank Dr. You. Stelter. Yeah. And I, I just appreciate so much you coming on and sharing this. I am very intrigued and I am a huge fan of looking at interventions and approaches outside of pharma, pharmacological approaches. Like you said, there are times where you need it. And often families are agreeing or doctors are going to that approach because they just don't have any other option. They don't have education. So what I hear you saying is that this is an option. This is an alternative to use in conjunction with. Yeah. Is there anything else that you feel like would be really helpful for folks to know about the work you're doing? Maybe some things that are coming up on the horizon, how, if they want to learn more about you or the work that you're doing, yeah, share, share that yeah. with us. If you don't mind. Absolutely. As I mentioned, we have developed two new certification programs. They actually came out late last year where people can become certified in the dementia connection model. And so there is the dementia connection specialist or DCS, which is credentials that you earn. And um, that's open to anybody because really when we talk about this, it's about being certified in how to connect with people living with dementia and anybody can benefit from that. Now for our healthcare professionals who are listening, we have a dementia connection specialist certified trainer. So a DCSCT certification where you can go out and actually train people to become DCSs, which helps our mission through our Institute, which is to train and educate as many people as possible on this model of care and specifically non-pharmacy tools. And so that's something where we have a team of trainers that are throughout the United States that are helping us to carry out that mission. We'd love you to become part of our team. We are actually hopefully by end of summer developing an online dementia connection classroom where any caregiver can go on and receive dementia education through various on-demand webinars, different kinds of classes that they can take and things like that. And for those who are healthcare professionals, they can earn CEUs through that process as well. So stay tuned to that. If you go to our website, DementiaConnectionInstitute.org, you can actually get on our email listserv and stay tuned with all the fantastic things we're developing throughout this year and next year and things like that. I also have a lot of resources on our website. There's a whole resource page with the different podcasts that we've been on, blogs we've written. We have a tool shop. You can actually go shopping for different tools that you might want to use for essential oils or this or that. My book's available too. It's a nice way to add more to your toolbox and really have that dementia connection live to you. So yeah, lots of exciting things to, that are coming, coming up. We just opened up the Institute last year. So it's so new. We're trying to get the word out. So please spread the word on it. So we are just grateful for opportunities like this to speak about it. Oh, this is fantastic. It, it is such a pleasure, really. And and I know our audience is going to be very excited to, to hear about this. And, and we'll be checking out your, your website and your book. Thank you so much for coming, really. And, thank, and you. thank you. Thank Appreciate you for it. the work that you're doing. This is so important to so many people. Uh, I hope you know that. Yes, absolutely. And I just, I, I want to just last kind of words is just tell people to 
keep educating yourself because we all still need to learn more about this disease, especially as things unfold through the research that's being done. So I just say, stay educated. It will empower you to, to all the nines that you need. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have comments or would like to send us a message, you can send it to info at lifeonrepeatpodcast.com. Please also consider following us at Life on Repeat Podcast, either on Instagram or Facebook. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.